stoned to death by his faith in Jesus, we see another figure enter into the story. And we see all those religious leaders come before one person and lay their coats before they stone Stephen. And that person was who? Does anyone remember? Saul. We're, we're introduced to this character called Saul. And Saul, we realize, is, is described not just as a person present for Stephen's execution, but also giving his approval. And we read this right after the account of Stephen's martyrdom. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. He approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great what? A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And what happens to the church because of this? They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. In other words, the church just got scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Devout men buried Stephen, and he made great lamentations over him. But who? But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so this is the reality that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a man named Saul who said, Stephen was the first martyr, but there's going to be many more. And so enter into our passage for today in Acts 9, uh, what do we see from Paul? We still see him hell-bent against the church. And it says this, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, in other words, the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so basically Paul, or, or I'm going to mix, mix up Saul and Paul just a lot so you know, but I'm talking about the same person. Uh, Saul basically has this vindictive mentality of pursuing the church and wiping the church out whatever way, whatever possible he can. And the distance to where he's traveling to the city of where? Starts with a D. Damascus. The distance of where he's traveling to Damascus is about 150 miles. He's doing this on foot. So here we have a guy, he's persecuting the church. He murdered Stephen. The church scatters, and so he's asking, can I hunt these people down? Can I chase after them? Can I arrest them? Can I destroy this movement? And so this is sort of a picture of Saul the bounty hunter, okay? That's what's going on here. And he's willing to walk up 150 miles going from house to house to basically track down Christians. Now, how committed do you have to be to travel 150 feet on foot to do something? You have to be very committed to this cause, right? I mean, what are you committed to that you would walk 150 miles for? Not much, right? Probably not even 20 miles. You're not much committed there. But this is about a week's journey that he's taking, and he is absolutely wanting to wipe out the movement of the church. And so what happens in the story where we have a guy who's so actively antagonistic against the church trying to absolutely wipe out this movement, absolutely anti-Jesus, anti-church, hates this movement, how do we go from this man to one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known? 
How do we go from this man to a man who is planting churches all around the Greco-Roman world? How do we go from this man who is a murderer of Christians being willing to be martyred for his faith in Jesus? Well, this is part of the story that we read today. And really, it's this powerful, supernatural story. And so, let's process this story together. I'm going to start in verse 3, and we're going to process what happens with Paul together. And so, verse 3 says this, Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. In other words, he was getting close to the end of his journey. And suddenly, what comes? A light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Let's pause here because there is a a lot to process and a lot to understand here. Uh, But first of all, let's just enter into the mind of Paul to get a deep understanding of what's going on for a sec, as best as we can. Paul is is traveling on his journey. We have this Jewish man um, who's seeped in the stories of the Old Testament. And when a light comes from heaven and shines all around him, what does Saul think he's experiencing right now? Any guesses from Old Testament stories? He, he thinks he's experiencing the presence of God, right? We call these theophanies, and there, there's many stories through the Old Testament of theophanies, which are these manifestations of God, this incredible, powerful presence of God. And all through these stories of the Old Testament, it's always described in some sort of light, What are some Old Testament stories that you can think of, theophanies of light coming from the presence of God? Any guesses or memories? Moses in the burning bush, right? This fire, this burning. What are some other things? The Exodus led by a pillar of what? A pillar of fire. We we see this language even around the, the... the, the coming of the Ten Commandments of thunder and lightning. We see this fiery flame. Uh, King David has this theophany experience of God where he says the light of God was actually outshining through the clouds. It was such a powerful experience. And so Paul, so I'm going to say that a lot, but I mean Saul, just to clarify again. <laughs> Saul is expecting this presence of God, this theophany, this manifestation of, of God in his presence with all this light shining. And that's why he falls to his knees. He, he falls because he believes he's in the presence of God. And he hears this voice cry out to him. And he's trying to process who is this God? What is he communicating? And I'm trying to understand. And he hears this voice cry out to him. What does this voice say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And boom, he would have thought, wait a second. The the mission that Saul was on, he thought he was trying to defend truth. He was trying to thought that he was 
honoring God and making sure this movement of Christ followers was pushed out so the truth of Judaism would shine through. And yet he hears this concept of why are you persecuting me? Saul knows that he's persecuting the church and so there's all these questions wrestling in his mind. So he says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, God? I don't know who you are right now. And what's the response? I am Jesus. Do you think this would have been a moment in crisis in Saul's life? This realization of thinking he's serving and honoring God and glorifying God now come to the realization that he's actually been persecuting God and working against God. And so everything in Saul's world has just been blown to pieces and his entire worldview is now just absolutely shattered. There's a lot more to say on that, but we'll get there later. And so what is Jesus instruct Saul to do. He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood what? Speechless. Even they couldn't comprehend what had just happened. Hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by a hand and brought him to, into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And so Jesus shows up as this powerful presence of light in Saul's life. And what Saul had realized is metaphorically that he had been walking in the spiritual darkness. He had been walking in this ignorance. He had been walking in this blindness. And Jesus shows up as this light. And what's beautiful here is what happens to Saul when he sees this light? He loses what? He loses his sight. Isn't that fascinating? He's literally blinded. Now, this isn't permanent in his life. This is this, uh, this, is this action that God is doing. And, and what God is doing here, he's actually mirroring the physical condition of Saul with his spiritual condition. The physical condition of, of losing his sight was to allow Saul to realize that spiritually he had been absolutely blinded to truth that he didn't understand truth, that he didn't understand who God was. And so he, he doesn't see everything that God wants him to see, and so he's spiritually blind, and, and God allows him to experience this physical blindness to mirror what he's actually experiencing spiritually. He doesn't see who God truly and fully is. Now, can you imagine how terrifying this would have been? Like, we sort of gloss over the story pretty quickly, but this would have been absolutely terrifying in the life of Saul. I'm sure he would have been thinking, God is going to take me out. God is going to destroy me. How could God forgive me? How could God allow me back into his presence after everything I've done against him? How all this, and what do we see? The result, not only is he blind, but he neither for three days did what? He didn't eat or drink right? 
Remember, Luke is a, a physician. He's a doctor who's explaining some of the, the realities of medical conditions here. And, and so what is this? This is uh, Saul is so filled with anxiety. Saul is so filled with distress. Saul is so overwhelmed that he can't even eat or drink for three days. That is what's going on here. And so you, you have this incredible, powerful experience of Saul that absolutely just destroys him at this point. Saul didn't see any of this coming. It just came instantly and absolutely upset everything in his life. And so what is Saul supposed to do after this experience? What does Jesus tell him to do? Right at the beginning there, he tells him to go, enter into the city, and you will be told what to do. Okay? So he's brought into the city, and Saul knows that he's entered the city. And what I find absolutely beautiful is the way that Saul was expecting to enter into Damascus and the way Jesus has Saul enter into Damascus are completely different, aren't they? Saul wants to enter into Damascus prideful. I'm going to take out this movement. I'm in power. I'm in control. I'm doing the will of God. And Jesus has him enter into Damascus how? Broken, humbled, blind, famished, right? I love how John Stott puts this. I think he unpacks this beautifully. He says, he who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. There could be no misunderstanding of what had happened. The risen Lord had appeared to Saul. It was not a subjective vision or dream. It was an objective appearance of the resurrected and now glorified Jesus Christ. The light he saw was the glory of Christ, and the voice he heard was the voice of Christ. Christ had interrupted his headlong career of persecution and had turned him round to face in the opposite direction. Isn't that beautiful? And really what this is a description of is what we as the church called conversion. Who here has heard of the word conversion before? Conversion is just this word that means turn. And and what this story of Jesus does in the life of Saul is Saul had his own plans and purposes and directions, what he thought was right, the pursuit that he wanted to follow. And basically, Christ comes to him and transforms him and changes him. And so Paul turns from his old ways of life of sin and evil and injustice against the church, and he turns towards the God of mercy and grace and love. And this is what we see in the life of Saul. And so let's continue the story, then we're going to process a lot more of it. And so if, if we can walk through verses 10 to 19 to see what happens next, and then we'll unpack more implications. So verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, 
And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now process that for a second. Who is God giving a vision to Ananias to go meet up with? Saul. Would you want to be Ananias right now? As a Christian, that would be the last person you want to go see. That would be the last person. We're talking about a man who most likely was part of killing and murdering men of Ananias' friends and family. A man who is actively pursuing to destroy the church and now Ananias realized something is going on. And so verse 12, we read this. And he has uh, seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said what? Brother Saul, how much faith would that take? Right? We'll process a little bit more later, but how much faith would that take to come into the presence of this man who had done so much evil and destruction and murder in the church, and he lays his hands on him and he calls him what? Brother. That should blow our minds. That reminds us that the gospel has the power to break down any barriers between anyone. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by, by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. Pretty wild story, isn't it? Pretty mind-blowing story of what just happened. And so how do we process this conversion of Saul? How do we get a greater sense of what is actually going on in this story? Well, I want to bring out a few implications for us today. And I think one of the first implications we need to realize is God's involvement in the story. And what God reveals about himself in the story is that his grace and mercy is absolutely radical, isn't it? It's absolutely mind-blowing. What fascinates me about the conversion of Saul is Saul isn't seeking Jesus at this point. He's not even remotely interested in Christianity at this point. Rather, Saul is someone who despised everything that the church stood for and everything that Jesus came to accomplish, yet it was in the very middle of Saul's rebellion and opposition that God's grace and mercy 
came upon him. And what we see here is that Jesus is on this quest to find Saul. And Jesus is the one who is on a mission to have a relationship and restore Paul. And Jesus is the one who was pursuing Saul out of love. That's good news about our God, isn't it? That's very good news because it reminds us that before we ever pursue God, before we ever pursue Jesus, Jesus is pursuing us and he's seeking after us and Jesus desires to restore relationship with us. It's beautiful for us to remind ourselves of that because we are loved by God way before we love God. That's the only hope we have. We were lost and dead in sin, and yet God sought us out, found us, and made us alive in him. Our salvation is completely based on our God being a God of grace and mercy. That's our only hope. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father does what? Draws him. In John 15, 16, Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. God is a God who seeks after us. Um, I, I, I'm a fan of C.S. Lewis, as many of you guys know. And anyone read his Surprise by Joy book before? Uh, C.S. Lewis, Surprise by Joy is basically his conversion story. And in his record of his conversion story, um, we, ha- we have a man, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he's, he's an atheist literature professor at Oxford. That's his background. And he ends up coming to faith in Christianity through a variety of means. Um, but one of the things that he wrote about is that how he could see God pursuing him over and over again in his life. And, and he talks about painful experience, even his wife dying and things of that nature. And he talked about the pursuit of God over and over again in his life. And he called himself, this is how he describes himself, he says, I was the most dejected and reluctant convert, convert in all of England. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? You think Paul would have been similar to that, a very reluctant convert. And C.S. Lewis says, I was drugged into the kingdom of God, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. In other words, C.S. Lewis is saying, I was exposed to the reality of the truth of who God was, but my natural inclination was to go every other direction. And to find a way around this truth. But he couldn't. Because he was a man who pursued truth. And so this is how he describes God in that pursuit. He describes God with the imagery of like a fisherman and a fish. Just sort of reeling you in. Uh, He he has this imagery of a cat chasing a mouse. Uh, He has this imagery of, of foxes. Uh, being chased by a pack of hounds. He, he has this image of a divine chess player putting him into checkmate. And, and all of it is to show that our God is such a God of grace and mercy that he is actively pursuing each and every one of us. 
And many of us have had experiences where we want to run from God. Uh, who is that experience where you just want to run from God, where you, you don't want to uh, acknowledge the truth, you don't want to be, uh, have authority over you or submit to God, but God is relentlessly pursuing us with his grace and mercy over and over again. And I want to speak especially to those of you who might be feeling distant or disconnected from God, maybe in this season of life where you have all these questions that you're wrestling with and you're wrestling with who God is. Um, maybe this could be a week where you just sit back and examine. As you go through this week, ask the question, what are some ways that God is pursuing me? What is the ways that God is actively trying to reveal himself to me? And maybe even this morning could be that first connection where I'm telling you right now, God is pursuing you. So that's your first clue. There's going to be more throughout the week and keep seeking God and keep pursuing him because he is pursuing you. And Saul's story today is such a powerful sign of that as well, that God is relentlessly pursuing us to restore us despite anything that we have done. What's another implication of this story of Saul's conversion? Well, I think the most obvious one is probably that no one is outside Jesus' power to rescue and redeem. When you think about the person who Saul was, this would be the last person in the world that anyone would expect to come to faith in Jesus. The last person in the world. Um, I, I wonder, as I was reading the story, I wonder what the people would have been thinking, the people of Damascus, as Saul enters into the city. Just, just picture that scene for a second. All, all the people of Damascus, the city, waiting for this high, prestigious religious leader who's come to wipe out the Christians among the city. And they're expecting this powerful religious zealot who came to make sure that Judaism remains strong in their city. Instead, Saul comes and enters into the city. And what does he look like? Weak, broken, blind, confused, totally reframed. I mean, we, we see the men who were with Saul were speechless after they witnessed what happened, but even Ananias is absolutely shocked in his vision from what God had accomplished in Saul. And I mean, he was skeptical at first, he was concerned, but he, he recognized in the end that this was a work of God. I mean, the skepticism of Ananias at first would have been this, you know what? The best way for Saul to infiltrate the church would be to do what? Be a spy, right? Enter in. False conversion. Come enter in, get all this insider information of what's going on, and that's how you could take down the church. And so there's this powerful vision where Ananias is literally risking his life to reach out to Saul. And this is incredibly powerful, what Ananias does, because what Ananias is recognizing when he calls Saul brother is he knows that the gospel is so powerful. He knows that Jesus can absolutely transform someone so intensively and rescue and redeem them 
in such a tangible way that he calls Saul brother. Ananias knew the power of the gospel. Ananias knew that no one is outside the reach of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. And and I believe this exposes some of the doubts we may have about God's power and salvation. We, We at times don't even pray for some people because we think they're too lost or they're too far gone or they're disinterested in Christianity, or they don't want to talk about Jesus. Is that true at all, church? Are they outside of the reach of God because of those things? A little more feedback? (laughs) Where's our conviction line? No, of course not. And so why do we practically live that way sometimes? And where, where I've probably seen this most recently is in our prayer lives or perhaps lapse of prayer, lack of prayer, is for our governing authorities when we think about this. Uh, We think about Putin or we think about our authorities here in Canada and we, we automatically go into criticism. We go into revolt. We go into ridicule. We go into slander. And we forget about the massive power of prayer, don't we? If Jesus could come to someone like Saul and absolutely change history through him, could Jesus not do that with any figure in history? He could, couldn't he? And so why don't we pray for it? See, what I find crazy is especially since we talked about Stephen last week, as Saul is literally putting Stephen to death, what was Stephen doing? Does anyone remember? He was praying to God for God to do what? To forgive. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we we see this echo of Stephen, almost a similar echo of Jesus. As Jesus is dying, Jesus is praying for his enemies. And as Stephen is dying, Stephen is praying for his enemies. And he's praying that his enemies would be forgiven by God even for killing them. And as we turn pages in the story, we go from Stephen's prayer, and what do we see in the life of Saul? God's answer to that prayer. Isn't that crazy? It's mind-blowing. And so we we come to this perspective is, is we should be continually in prayer for anybody and everyone that they would come to know God and be restored God. We can never have this mentality of they've gone too far or they've done too many horrific things or, or they have no interest in who God is. They don't care about Jesus. Well, neither did Saul. And, and yet we see this deep transformation come through Jesus in his life. And so if there's anyone that you have stopped praying for in your life, uh, this is God's word teaching us and instructing us that we need to be in constant prayer for them once again. And so third in this story, what is another major implication that we read about? 
Third, God can restore our sinful past for the advancement of his kingdom. Amen? Who here has a past that needs to be restored? (laughs) The beautiful thing is that God doesn't hold our past against us in shame and guilt, but he actually renews and restores us so that we can take what was once an act of evil and injustice and he can restore it so that we can be people of righteousness and generosity and love. And this is how uh, Paul describes his his restoration in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16. Let me just read this just to hear the restoration that Paul experienced. He says this, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in belief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, does anyone know? Sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that good news for us, church? This is, this is Saul's way of saying that I was the most sinful person you could imagine in this world because I persecuted the very church of God, the people of God, and acted against him. And the most shameful parts of Saul's past are now redeemed by God to advance the mission of God. Like, think about this. God took the greatest enemy of the church, the greatest enemy of the church at the time, with the blood of God's people on his hands, and then he sent him planting churches preaching the gospel, and advancing the mission of God. Amen? Isn't that crazy to think about? We can't forget that the church's greatest missionary is once its greatest enemy. And so when we look at our own lives and we, we look back and we, we see things that we have shame about or regret or even perhaps guilt, well, God is reminding us that he can restore those things and send us on mission and send us to actually be advancers of his kingdom of righteousness and peace. And so nothing in our life then should ever make us feel like we are disqualified to be used by God. When God gifts us with his spirit, he can do mighty, mighty great things through us. And so let me, let me close by saying this. Uh, first of all, I want to say a couple things to us as a church family and then those of you who are perhaps seeking or trying to figure out who God is. Well, for the church, I think something we have to process, first of all, is who are you praying that Jesus would save? Who are you praying 
that Jesus would save? Stephen gives us such an intense example of this. Where I, I, I truly believe that Stephen's martyrdom would have been plaguing Saul. He, he would have witnessed Stephen praying for forgiveness of his enemies. And Saul probably would have been wrestling with that. I mean, another account of Paul's conversion talk about how God sent the goads after her, him. In other words, there was these prodding times in Paul's life where he had to question and he had to reevaluate. And I think Stephen's martyrdom was one of them. Why? Because he was praying. And so we need to analyze and readdress that who are we praying for that God would be saved? Is it, is it in our concept of who might be spiritual enough or who might be seeking enough or who might be pursuing God? No, there's no boundaries there. God can save anyone. The, the question is, do you believe God's spirit can do this? Uh, the second question we need to ask is, uh, what is your testimony about Jesus? Paul tells us specifically, he tells us over and over again in the book of Acts, it's something that's highlighted. He says, here's how I met Jesus. Here's what absolutely transformed my life. Here's what drastically changed everything. Here's what reevaluated my entire worldview. Here's what changed my very purpose and passion in life. And we have to ask the question of, well, how do we meet Jesus? How did he reveal himself to us? And how do we tell others about it? Uh, this is a powerful way that Saul used to explain the gospel to people as he would talk about how Christ came to him and changed his life. And the question we need to address is, well, who are we sharing our story with? Have we had a, a true conversion that we can actually share our story about? Now, for those of you in community groups, that's something you're going to be doing this week is sharing more of your stories together. Share specifically about this conversion experience where you turn from your life and turn towards God himself. And for those of you who are seeking, I have this question. Do you recognize God's pursuit of you before you're seeking? Because you may be on this path and journey of trying to figure out questions and answer questions and seeking after God. What you need to realize is God is pursuing you right now. Do you notice those things? Do you acknowledge those things? Do you try to converse with God in those moments? God is actively pursuing you more than you could ever know. Do you believe that Jesus can save you? Or are you so caught up in your guilt and your shame and your past that you say, I can't come to God? God wouldn't accept me. The life of Saul tells us the exact opposite, that God will actually seek after you in the midst of that. And there's nothing that can keep you from his love. And then in light of that, if God is pursuing you, if God will restore you and accept you and welcome you and forgive you and offer salvation, will you turn to him? 
Will you pursue him? And then for those of you who have turned to God, the question is, will you be baptized? See, what I find crazy about Saul's story is we see not only does Ananias come and call him brother, restore his sight, explain more of the gospel to him, but we see Saul baptized very quickly in the story, don't we? He has such a dramatic conversion, such a powerful experience of Christ that one of the first acts he does as a follower of Jesus as he turns is he becomes baptized. And this is a way of, of him saying, I give my allegiance to Jesus. I submit my life to Jesus. I follow Jesus. I turn towards him. I confess my sin. I deny myself seeking attitudes and I live now for God. A radical transformation. And so... Let's pray to that extent. I'm going to call up the team and, and maybe a closing song we can reflect on is um, the name of Jesus. And we can just pray that over ourselves as we comprehend. But let me, let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we simply confess that we don't often realize how extensive your grace and mercy truly is. Help us to have eyes that are open. Help us have our blindness removed to the extent of your grace and mercy so that we can be reaching people with the gospel, people with the name of Jesus, that we would never expect that you are doing a powerful work in. Lord, give us a boldness and a confidence to pray for those people that we see as far gone or too lost or too distant from you. Convict us there, we pray. And Lord, for those of us who are, are seeking, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who first sought after us that you are a God who pursued us first so that we could even look towards you. And I pray that you would just give them a glimpse of the love that you have for them, the mercy and grace that you have for them, how deeply you desire to restore relationship with them so they can experience you and your salvation and know the plans and purposes that you have for their life. Lord, we all have walked the path of selfishness and destruction and despair. Lord, I pray that anyone in this room who doesn't know you would, would turn to you and find the life of joy and freedom and peace and righteousness that only comes from a relationship and knowing you, Jesus. And so we pray that by your Spirit, you would just teach us and instruct us this morning and that the, the story of Saul would be such a powerful reminder to us of your ability to transform, your ability to restore, your ability to send us in directions in life that we could never expect. 
ways that are done for your glory and our good. We thank you, gracious God, for everything you have done. We praise you for this. We praise the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.